2: Good afternoon. Welcome, everyone, to the penultimate session of WonkFest. Um, of course, delighted to welcome Sam Gima, our minister. For so I, I think this is the, the busiest session we've had. A lot to get through, lots to talk about, lots in the newspapers, um, sure, and lots of sure. policy detail. But thank you, for, thank you for coming to WonkFest, Sam. It's really appreciated. I know our whole community is looking forward to hearing from you. Uh, we've got time for questions, um, but we've got a lot, of, a lot to get through. So.
1: And it's it's great to be at Ravensbourne, I haven't visited yet, I'm on my travels, and uh, it's fantastic and um, good to see what's happening here.
2: It's fab, we love Ravensbourne. It's been an interesting few days. (laughs) This This is just the last four days of newspaper headlines. Now, wonky readers will be familiar with some of the lines in the press over the last couple of years. Uh, but the last four days have been extraordinary, even by uh, the standards of, of recent times. And it's, that's the context, I think, for our discussion today. Uh, and these are some of the issues that we really need to talk about, I think. Um, universities on the brink, 6.5k fees, uh, and the post-18 review, um, freedom of speech, of course, uh, and all the issues around it. Uh, but I just wanted, to, wanted these up here because... Um, they, kind of, they kind of set the scene. Uh, I, th- I think the sector is probably it's the most alarmed state I've seen it um, <clears throat> in a few years. And that's saying something. We've, we've had some real uh, headwinds. Uh, but the, 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 the atmosphere right now is, is febrile. Um, I want to talk about this question of universities failing uh, and the bailout uh, and your role in it and DFE's role in it. Um, there are thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of students looking to apply for the January 15th deadline to, to university. As you've started yourself as the self-styled minister for students, which...
1: Yes, uh, I always knew someone was going to quote that back at me. Yeah. Carry on.
2: Do you think you have a responsibility to let students know who these universities are that are on the brink?
1: Well, um, well, thank you for your question. And As you pointed out, there's been a lot of uh, print coverage on what's going on in universities, actually not just over the last few days, or I think ever since I got this job. And um, if you had to look back a year or two, there have been lots and lots of um, issues around universities. Now, you're asking me to comment on speculation in a newspaper that there are universities on the brink. I don't recognise that, Uh, I certainly don't recognise what that newspaper article is talking about, but we do have a system and we do have a process for dealing with universities that could find themselves in that situation. And you had Michael Barber here earlier today. He um, is the chairman of the Office for Students, which is the regulator of universities. And the regulator, since it uh, it came into being, I think in August um, of this year, has been going through a registration process for all universities. And part of that registration process requires the regulator to look in detail at the financial sustainability of universities. And so the a university wouldn't get registered if it financially didn't meet the criteria set by the OFS or if it was uh, having difficulty if there wasn't a plan to resolve it. So as far as students are concerned, and yes, you said as the self-styled Minister for Students, I think it is right to be interested uh, primarily, uh, certainly in this context, in students that um, there is a process to make sure that universities they apply to are in sound financial health and were there to be a crisis down the line, that there is a process to make sure that they can carry on their studies and get the degrees that they deserve. And there is a, that's why we have student protection plans, and each institution has to have a student protection plan that is very thoroughly um, investigated by the OFS as part of the registration process. But the big message here, the big message here is that universities are autonomous institutions, and they are responsible, and with that responsibility, they're they're autonomous and they're free, and with that comes responsibility for their own business models. And I completely agree with Michael Barber that that is the case, and they should be responsible for their decisions, they should make sure that if they are borrowing and making their financial planning, that they think about the downsides of that, as well as all the upsides. I think that is a very clear message, and I completely back the OFS in delivering that message to universities. No bailouts.
2: Michael Barber said that the student protection plans still need work. He didn't give us a lot of confidence earlier today that they really can uh, protect every single student to continue their studies if the worst case was to happen. Do you have confidence that the RFS really does have a sufficient plan to deal with the fallout of a university failing? If it's not going to step in and bail it out, do you think they they were able to hold it all together
1: for the students? I do have confidence that in the unlikely event that that were to happen, i.e., university um, going bust that we will be able to take the necessary steps to protect the students at that institution and that is something that I mean the OFS is working on actively but I have confidence that we will be able to do that.
2: Do you see a role distinct for you and DfE to OFS to step in in these, in these situations?
1: Of course you know I, I, I mean the, you've, the, it's the regulators, it's a primary function of the regulator but as the minister for universities, but also the secretary of state, we have an active interest, but so does government as a whole. You know, The government's civil contingencies unit, which sits in the cabinet office, would have an active interest in what is happening here. So it's, yeah. we're, not in it, we're not just saying that we're leaving this to the OFS, and if something happens, it's all down to the regulator. We all have an active interest and in an active dialogue um, around making sure that the necessary plans are in place but the organisation with the statutory responsibility to deal with this issue is the OFS as a regulator.
2: Does it, does it worry you, the idea that a university might fail?
1: The reason why I used um, the language in the unlikely event is you don't want universities to fail. Uh, many of our universities are anchor institutions you know, where they're very successful, they play a civic role in their communities. In many parts, they are some of the largest employers in the area. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't talk about responsibility for vice-chancellors, but also governance around proper decision-making.
2: I mean, there's there's been government interference and government help when it comes to to bailing out universities in the past. And I'm just trying to think through the political reality of of something happening here. For university, as you mentioned, they're anchors in their regions. Uh, Most have several members of parliament with a strong interest in their success. Um, The political reality is that uh, the damage done to it, the damage done to any part of his country by a university falling over would cause a political fallout that you're not going to want to deal with, Michael Barber's not going to want to deal with. Uh, universities have long, wide networks across civil society, across politics. Um, are you ready to front this out, this no out line, when, you know, the ten, 10 local Conservative MPs call Theresa May and say, why, 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 why aren't you bailing out this university? We depend on it for jobs.
1: I think the key point here is you want to avoid getting to that situation. And as universities put together their five-year plans, when they go knocking on the door of Mr Barclays or Miss HSBC borrowing all that amount of money against their student projections, it's very important that the banks and the universities know that the government's policy is that we do not see it as the government's rule to bail universities out when they, if they make reckless financial decisions.
2: Okay, putting aside reckless financial decisions, you said to the Education Select Committee in April, the Open University is of such significance that I will do everything I can to make sure it carries on doing the good work it's been doing for the last 40 years. Do you stand by that?
1: I do. I, I, I've, I mean, the, absolutely. I think the... Well, will, you, will, you bail,
2: will you bail can, them out? Can I,
1: can, yeah. I, can, I, um, can I actually answer the Go first ahead. part of your question? <laughs> the, the, the issue with um, the Open University is... Mature students, part-time students, and some structural changes in the market that they're having to deal with. There is a difference between messing up your business model and policy decisions making it difficult for an institution like the Open University, where we already support part-time institutions, so we're not bailing out the Open University. In fact, I said um, in this select committee that the Open University um, had significant reserves, I thought, to work through, but where there is support, that you would ordinarily give to part-time universities, that we need to make sure that that support is available to the open university as it went through a challenging time with our part-time institutions. I think that is quite a different case to a university borrowing lots of money in the hope that it will be able to recruit lots of students and that not materialising and saying the government should bail them out.
2: So there's good failure and bad failure. There's failure that that's universities of their own making and there's, there's failure led by government policy, other economic trends, and they're going to be, they're going to be treated differently.
1: Um, I think every situation you're asking me to you ask me to sort of comment on hypotheticals and hypotheticals and hypotheticals. It's not a hypothetical. It, it, is a hypothe- it, is, yeah. it is a hypothetical situation, right? We we don't have an active case in front of us to discuss. Every situation will be taken on its uh, merits. But the policy is: if you're a university, you're responsible for your own business model, and that comes with autonomy. I think that is pretty clear.
2: I want to to move us on to the question of fees. I know you're not going to speculate on the outcome of the auger review, but I'm interested in your uh, where you think the fee level should be.
1: The headline (laughs) fee. (laughs) 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 Okay, okay. Um, I've always said a good degree is worth the investment, and I stick to that. And um, is up for the panel to sort of come up with its recommendations. And right, I wouldn't comment on any specific number, but I can. I can give you kind of how I would look at the situation. And I think what, when we look at the last, sort of since, since 2012, some of the advantages of the system being, for example, the huge strides made in terms of social mobility. And I would say that any proposals that I would look at, I would want to make sure that those positive strides made and the advantages that that has brought do not set us in reverse, but actually that we build on dealing uh, with some of the issues. I was looking at some data the other day, and you know, you take um, Bolton, uh, sorry, Bristol South, and 18% of young people there go to university, and then you look at Richmond, and it's something like 60% plus. So, in terms of social mobility and young people from disadvantaged backgrounds going to university, there is um, still a way to go, even though big strides have been made. I am concerned about sort of part-time and mature students and so I'll be looking at that uh, when I see uh, the recommendations. But I think another way of looking at this is also paying some attention to the terms of reference of the review. The terms of reference of the review explicitly mentions the financial sustainability of universities as something the review has got to um, look at in terms of its recommendations. Um, It talks about. the industrial strategy, and specifically um, the impact on science, research, and R&D, which also is in my brief. So I would want to see the recommendations being recommendations that support that economic effort that universities are so uh, central to. So those are some of the criteria that I would be looking to evaluate um, the recommendations.
2: And, And on the social mobility question, would you see the return of student number controls as a retrograde step?
1: Well, I think it's, um, as I said, we want to support aspiration. As I said there have been huge strides that have been made since 2012. You know, I do not want to see recommendations that send those into reverse. And um, you were right, just going back to some of your earlier question, that uh, P, uh, institutions are alarmed by the numbers that were put out at the weekend. And um, you know, the right thing to do is, if I can't, I'm not going to comment on any specific number, is that, and I've said this to you, UK, in public, I've said it to them in private, I've said this um, to a million plus and all the other institutions, universities should also be out there setting out a positive vision for what they think will work and what framework they need to see for universities. I think that is, that is equally important in this dialogue. And the panel, as far as I'm aware, it's still very, in very early days. So it's good for universities to be out there don't just be alarmed. Actually go out there and start out a positive vision for what you think would work, but also a positive vision for what universities are doing. Very often I speak to institutions and they'll say, we're already doing this. We're already linked with employers in our local community. We've already got, we've got these links with FE. And so it's some fantastic work that is going on in the sector, and I focused on this very much in my Sheffield speech to highlight some of this fantastic work. The universities have also got to be out there sharing this fantastic work with the world.
2: Perhaps another way of putting it, lobbying against these proposals? Is that what you're saying? You don't want 2012 to be reversed?
1: I I, I said the social, yeah, it's social mobility um, benefits. I I think we do not want to see the advantages of that setting to reverse, yeah.
2: Is is there a red line for you? So on on student number controls in particular?
1: We've got, I mean, I haven't seen any proposals, and when I see the proposals, I'll take them in their totality, so I'm not going to set red lines. I think we know that some setting red lines before you've even actually seen anything doesn't seem like a smart thing to do. Mm.
2: But you think we should be taking very seriously those numbers coming out of the weekend that, that are causing
1: such alarm? I'm not saying take them seriously. I'm saying if you have concerns about it, you should be, it is the right thing to do is to be setting out your positive vision for the role of universities and what good they're doing and what framework would work. I think that's... Um, that, that, that seems like a good thing to do.
2: I, I know you don't want to put a number on it, though, but do you think 9,250 is too high? Do you think we're going to have to move down or, or up?
1: I don't think I'm going to see any more than a good degree's worth investment. I mean, you know that I, I can't... You know, it's, this, is, this is what we call in the trade a lose-lose question. right? Whatever I say in answer to this, it's going to be bad, so I'd rather not go there.
2: <laughs> okay. But we should, be lobbying, we should be lobbying against this. This is what I'm hearing. We should be setting out a positive vision no, 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 because, no. because the risk that 65 uh, and the return of student number controls is going to unpick the, the, the elements that do work for social mobility at the moment.
1: Look, it, the you're, you're trying to push it. Look, I, I spoke in Parliament in favour of um, increasing tuition fees, and I spoke in Parliament in favour of it at the time, because I could see the social mobility benefits of having universities that were well-funded, sharing the burdens with the taxpayer and also having no barrier to anyone going to go into university. I think that is, the, when I look at it, that is the same. But in terms of what I've been going around campuses, I've probably spoken to about 2,000 students, there are a lot of, interest, a lot of issues people are interested in. Some fees, some maintenance, some interest, and that's why I said I'll look at it in its totality in terms of what comes out of the review. Okay.
2: Hands on hearts, is Brexit good for higher education? <laughs> Brexit, the, the policy of your
1: government. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, no, no Brexit, Bre- Brexit was something the British people voted yeah. for, the, the government is implementing. And I voted remain, and I, I've, I've, I've always been very upfront about it, and I voted remain because I thought Brexit was going to be costly and complicated and um, very difficult to do. And I could see benefits only for the young generation in terms of uh, remaining in the EU. But you also, one thing you don't do in a democracy is try to set aside the result of an election because your side lost. And in terms of um, the impact on higher education, while there are challenges, I can also see some opportunities. And in fact, if you were to ask me what my priorities are for the sector, you know, one of the number one priorities is making sure that as we go through Brexit, certainly in terms of EU um, association with, the, with EU framework programmes, Horizon Europe, that we gain full association status and we continue to benefit from collaboration in EU research and alongside that, mobility of researchers. That is my number one priority alongside um, the Erasmus programme, and I invest a lot of time in that. I speak regularly to the EU Commissioner for Science and Innovation, Carlos Moidash. So that is a priority. But I can also see other opportunities for us. And the reason why I see other opportunities is on the research and development side, whilst other <coughs> departments have been under financial pressure, the government is investing unprecedented amounts of money on research and development. There's an extra $7 billion going into that over the next five years. That's the biggest increase we've had for research and development in 40 years. In addition to that, we have a target to invest as a country 2.4 percent of our GDP in research and development by 2027, going up to three percent. We're currently investing 1.7 percent. Just to put that number, just to put a number on 2.4 percent if we achieve it, um, it is an extra 80 billion that the U.K. will be putting into research and development in this country. Um, that is absolutely colossal. But what it does is it puts universities, because a lot of our research in this country is done for our universities, it puts, it puts universities at the heart of the big question that no one is asking about Brexit, which is how do we pay our way when we leave the EU? With financial services um, less profitable, North Sea oil on the decline, what is Britain going to be like in 20, 30 years' time? And the bet the government is making is that there's going to be innovation, it's going to be research-led, it's going to be science, and universities will benefit. It would mean we need to create new relationships uh, in addition to the EU relationships we have. It would mean that we need to um, hustle more. But I can see big opportunities for the university sector. So yes, by all means, we want to make sure that we lock in um, whatever the benefits we had with the EU. But we also have a big opportunity, and it's it's a big priority of mine, for universities to be at the heart of the question, how is Britain going to succeed? Internationally, but also in local communities. And I see universities as playing a big role in that.
2: But if if Brexit goes south and the economy falls off the cliff, there isn't going to be all these billions extra. uh, Are you ready to make the case for investing in knowledge and innovation to rebuild the country?
1: See, my job description, you know, Minister of Science, Research, Innovation, I'll be lobbying not just for, I'll always be lobbying for more money for research and innovation, but also the openness that is essential to succeed in research and innovation to succeed here. You want the brightest and the best, you want the talented and entrepreneurial to be able to come here and collaborate with the best um, in the UK. Um, um, Whatever the outcome of Brexit, and you said if Brexit goes south, I don't happen to uh, take that view. I think that is what we should be doing. I see universities as being central to the story of economic growth, not just about training the next generation, but also creating the companies of the future. And this is not just about science, and uh, scientific discovery you also need the wisdom of people in the social sciences to answer some of the big questions that um, emerging technologies are throwing up for us.
2: I need to move us on to a completely different area you talked a lot about the monoculture in universities again this is another heavily loaded question but is the monoculture not just code for students not voting conservative?
1: Not at all. Not at all. Um, actually, quite pragmatic about this. I mean, it's always been the case that students tend to be against the status quo. You know, so uh, there's nothing new there. You know, um, when Tony Blair was in government, there was lots of students who marched against Tony Blair on the Iraq War. So um, you don't expect students to vote in um, the same direction as the governing party. I didn't expect that at all. And in fact, you know, I have never used language like you know st- universities being left-wing madrasas or. I've never said you know, universities are full of snowflakes because I don't believe in any of that. But in when I talk about a monoculture, what I mean is having a culture where dissenting views, whatever they are, are unwelcome, and people can only speak from the silos of the identity that is prescribed for them. So if there was an issue to do with uh, race and mark, you got in someone and say to you, how do you know what it means to be black? of course you might not be black, but it doesn't mean that you don't have an opinion that is worth sharing. You know, if, um, if, if it's a trans issue and you are a 50-year-old white man and you got involved in it, it's like you shouldn't comment on this because that's not the silo that is, has been allocated to you. I think there is a lot of that um, in our universities. And I think what that does is it kind of undermines um, what I think should be at the heart of discourse in universities which is the relentless pursuit of the truth. And you can't have that if dissenting opinions, so long as they are within the law, are not embraced, encouraged, and fostered in the university environment. And that also means you need rigor. And too often... Someone makes a statement and the response is, you know, they should retract the statement or you condemn them. Don't just ask them to retract it. Debate with them. Tell them why they are wrong. And I I think an emotional response as opposed to a rational uh, response where you actually engage in the issues and you just ask, ask people to retract comments because you disagree with them. It's not what you want to see at our universities. But you mentioned the party political point, and I will be absolutely upfront that when the shadow chancellor says, I want every conservative to be made to feel uncomfortable on our university campuses, that is a problem. It is a problem because that should not be happening, and you do not want a senior politician basically saying, if someone comes on campus and you disagree with them, hound them off because you do not want to hear those views. That I have a problem with. So I I don't want... I'm not saying I want students to vote conservative or support conservative views. What I'm saying is that you should have free and frank exchange of ideas, but done in a civil way. Don't give offence for the sake of it. Don't take offence for the sake of it.
2: Do you think universities do enough to protect freedom of speech on their own campuses?
1: I mean, the, what, what, what I'll say is the Joint Human Rights uh, Committee, the so Joint uh, Laws and Commons Committee, has looked at this issue extensively in the Commons. And um, one of the, conclu- the conclusions they came up with was that there re- there is a myriad of rules and regulations around free speech, some of which are overlapping, and some of which could be used by, you know, what I call wreckers on campus to frustrate free speech. So this is not me saying it. This is a cross-party, cross-parliamentary committee saying it. And um, my response is in a... Rather than, you know, I get criticised for you looking for kind of a battle, some kind of culture war to fight. And my response is actually quite a boringly technocratic one, is to say, here is a a set of recommendations by cross-party committee made up of peers and MPs. Let's actually look at it and try and implement it. And it's not just to try and implement it on our own. We've got the Quality and Human Rights Commission, we've got the NUS, we've got the OFS, We've all come together, and what we want to do is publish new guidance that will make it very clear what promoting free speech is on campus and what frustrating free speech is on campus, and also make it clear when some of the um, issues around trigger warnings or no platforming move from actually protecting the vulnerable to a form of censorship. But this is not just the government doing it. We are looking at this with other organisations in a way that I think will. Foster and strengthen free speech of our universities. And frankly, if universities are not about free speech, then what are they for?
2: I think it's a welcome and slightly softer line than you were giving a few months ago, talking more about no, the problems of no platforming um, and some of those. Some of those Have you been have you been won over by all the analysis that shows actually it's vanishingly small instances
1: of? Yeah. You know, no platform, Mark, if you're a barrister, you know, the judge would say you keep leading the witness. By all the evidence that you've seen. But, but, no, I, think it's, I, I think no platforming someone just because you disagree with them, um, it's, it's wrong. Right? And uh, I, haven't, I haven't changed any of these. I, I think um, asking for you know, the you know, Prime Minister's photo, uh, portrait to be taken down, I'm not saying this will happen, but let's say hypothetical, because you think it's... it's, it's it, sends, it sort of triggers a few things. Come that's, that's not acceptable. I think there is a point where some of these ideas that originated with the um, trying to protect the vulnerable, like, for example, safe spaces, have j- just evolved into something completely different. Now, a safe space for a group of people in a university to discuss an issue that is of concern to them, I understand. But you can't have the entire university as a safe space where certain views are welcome and certain views are not welcome. And I think saying that is not a hard line view. I think it's common sense if you really value free speech. And often what happens in a monoculture is if you live in it, you think it's all fine.
2: This is, I'm, I'm trying to, to establish kind of where, where you put these lines. Nothing's
1: changed. You, nothing's I haven't changed. changed from our original position. I'll
2: go back even further. You were, you were famous at the Oxford Union for inviting Tariq Aziz to speak, the Deputy Prime Minister of Iraq, lots of war crimes to his name. Um, the Home Office denied him a visa, so the event never happened. Do you think though, just take a contemporary example, the Oxford Union today should invite the Crown Prince or Bashar al-Assad?
1: So this was, I invited Tariq Aziz, 19-year-old student, um, after the first Gulf War. He was Iraqi foreign minister, was on TV, we are listening to his views on Iraq all the time, and I thought it would be good to to debate him and to challenge him. And I think that is the bit that is missing, when we talk about free speech, um, we talk about it as though once you have someone there who's unacceptable, you are, it's exposed to them in free speech, so the abuse are a form of violence that can be inflicted on you and cause damage to you. But free speech is about challenge and debate, and the reason why I invited him was for him to be challenged by very intelligent students and to be debated with. I think it was acceptable. The Home Office denied him a visa, you know, the World carried on, and I thought it was unacceptable, but I think that's a good thing that someone... Uh, I do not regret doing that at all.
2: And if, and if the Oxford Union was to invite the crown prince next week to debate... Crown prince? Which or, crown Saudi prince? Saudi Arabia. Or, or, or any, any dictator with horrendous war crimes to their names.
1: You can challenge them. I think it's... If, if, you, if you had someone like that, then they were challenged and they were asked tough questions... You're not, you're not necessarily celebrating or fetting them. That's what, that's what democracy is about. Democracy is not putting our, our fingers in our ears and not challenging views we don't agree with. Democracy is about pointing to those views and showing where, how wrong they are. And sometimes actually challenging people is how you hope to real, for them to realise that look where public opinion is.
2: Okay, that's, that's, that's helpful. I think it's genuinely trying to establish where the... Where the, where the lines are? I think it's
1: free speech within the law.
2: Okay. That's it. I've got to move us on. This I'd love to talk, carry on talking about I this. I can tell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk about uh, unconditional offers. You, you, you've mentioned this a few times recently. Um, do you support a system of, of post-qualification admissions?
1: I think it's interesting. But... Um, I'm yet to be persuaded that all the administrative complexity can be resolved, but I think it's interesting. And the reason why I think it's interesting is specifically going back to the social mobility point: people who are not predicted particularly high grades and do well in their exams suddenly being able to rethink what they're going for. I think you can do that; you can trade up, actually, within the current system. But very few people do because clearing doesn't really operate in that way. So I think it's for me it would be most interesting from that perspective if it actually helps with um, getting more disadvantaged students into universities that they probably didn't think they could get into. It would be interesting. But I understand there are a lot of administrative difficulties with going down that route.
2: On a a, a similar theme that you've talked about, would you back universal marking standards to stop grade inflation?
1: Um, I think it's one of these interesting ideas. I am I, yet to be persuaded about kind of how it actually works. And um, I mean, university, after all, is about independent learning, and universities are not—they're not, they're not just bigger schools where you have a core curriculum. And you know, history at every university is the same as history. History at each university is the same. I can see how in subjects like medicine, you can have uniform sort of approaches to things. So. My instinct, being absolutely honest, I think it's actually more complex than it appears, unless someone can persuade me otherwise, I'm happy to look at it. But the broader question is, how do you deal with grade inflation? And when you look at the data, the speed um, and the nature of the increase of uh, people getting top grades, it's it's quite alarming. And um, I think there is, something, there is something to be said for actually preserving the quality of our world-class education system, and therefore looking at ways to make sure that, yes, students work incredibly hard, and if they work incredibly hard, they should get the grades they deserve, but what you don't want is universities deliberately or inadvertently lowering standards. I think that's unacceptable.
0: Would you
2: introduce, or would you you support students suing university for lost contact time and, say, an industrial strike?
1: I think this is where the regulator is uh, very important and um, the nature of the contracts and agreements that universities come to with students. And for that to make very clear, what in terms of value for money terms, what students get for what they pay. I'm not, I wouldn't go as far as saying that legal recourse should be sought, but I think those agreements should really specify how the university is going to deliver service that student is paid for. And I think that's it. That's important. We would accept that in, and expect that in almost every other walk of our life. I mm. don't see why a university should be exempt.
2: All right, my last of these. Uh, would you support uh, rent control and student accommodation to tackle cost of living?
1: Um, I don't think I'll go that far, but I am concerned. Uh, I, I, am, I am very concerned because it's actually we started this discussion talking about fees and everything, but when I've spoken to students directly, most of the issues that students raise with me are to do with the cost of living. And rent is a big chunk of the cost of living, and especially if you're in London, um, it is quite, it's a lot of money. Often students are asked to, some students are asked to pay rent a year in advance, which also hits um, their cash flow. So it is a concern. we are looking at this issue in the department. I'm not quite sure rent control is the right mechanism, but I think what we can do around student accommodation to help uh, with the cost of living is something that we are looking at, and I'm not sure. Would
2: it be one of your tests for the AUG review about student maintenance um, and cost of living and all those issues? Do, would you want to make sure that whatever was introduced didn't negatively affect?
1: I, I think um, the, the terms of reference obviously talks about... Um, Making, universe, uh, making, making sure that education is accessible for everyone I think within, the, within that um, cost of living and maintenance um, comes into that and I'd expect the review to look at that.
0: Okay,
2: can I open up for questions? I see the first one over here. Please make them snappy short as you can. Say who you are, where you're from. Uh, we've got about five minutes so let's get as many as we can.
1: Five I think I'll
2: take, a, I'll take a round of three. You a chunk of the time. I did.
1: <laughs>
0: Thank you. Uh, Kevin Hetherington from the Open University. I feel I have to respond to some of the, the comments that were made early on about my institution and then want to pose go, it as a question. So the Open University is not in immediate financial difficulties. It is not about to go bust and it is not looking for any kind of financial bailout what we are looking for is a level playing field in terms of policy around part-time study and part-time students. Uh, It's not just the Open University that is suffering because of the the policy uh, impact that we've, we've had over the last 10 years. Um, it's the UK economy that's suffering because we are losing out on the the benefits that flexibility, part-time study, lifelong learning bring to the skills development within within the UK uh, and uh, the the lost opportunity that we have because many uh, people are no longer choosing to study because they're debt-averse around the the fees arrangement means that the the economy is is suffering as a consequence. So what I would like to, to hear from the Minister is whether there is any fresh thinking or new thinking around policy in relation to part-time study
2: okay uh over here we'll come back we'll come okay to take them as three i'm duncan piper from the dyson institute of engineering and technology um companies across the uk are making billions of pounds worth of profit every
1: year how can we encourage more companies to be part of the solution in higher education funding
2: and i saw someone over there
1: Um, Kudzai Mazagaza, President of the University of Lincoln Students' Union. Um, Minister, I welcome your comments about um, the cost of living because um, it's something that is quite pertinent with students that I interact with. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, a good degree is worth the investment, so I'd be very curious to hear your views on how you define a good degree.
2: How I define. How you define a degree that is worth the investment?
1: Okay. So, um, three questions. Firstly, the Open University, uh, I think you put uh, the case uh, much more clearly than I did around what our policy impacts versus um, sort of business, business model consequences for institutions. Um, part-time study, mature study is very much something that the review is focused on. and I expect they'll be coming up with some fresh ideas in terms of how we facilitate that and ensure that that part of the higher education experience uh, continues to grow and thrive. So that's where uh, new policy thinking will be coming from, but it is very high on the agenda. And I think if we're going to talk about um, access to higher education in any meaningful way, it's got to embrace um, part-time and mature study as the Open University um, majors on. Um, in terms of the question about employers, I think it's a very, very good question. I mean, employers are... To some extent involved because of the apprenticeship levy and uh, post 18 education through the apprenticeship levy, but also degree apprenticeships. And um, there is a question as to whether you can get employees more involved in terms of um, student finance more broadly in that. academic degrees. I, you know, if there are any smart ideas, I'll be very happy to look at them because the fact is, it is employers who keep saying they are not getting the graduates uh, that they need. So, I think the more employers can be involved, not just in funding, but actually in some cases design of courses and um, providing opportunities for students to spend some time in industry. I think these are all different ways in which employers uh, can be involved and I would want to see more of that than is currently uh, the case. Um, The third question is defined in good degrees with investment. Um, I, I, I would say, well, there are many benefits of a degree, I mean, and the, the difficulty with using the language that I use about investment is it immediately takes you down the route of kind of what's the financial return um, from your degree, but we know that there are a lot of degrees that um, might not yield the kind of financial return that someone would get if they went to work in a hedge fund after university, but are very valuable to us in society. And so people who get degrees and work a, as nurses or as social workers, you know, are very valuable to us as a society, and there are some degrees where people do things that are inherently low paid. So, if you go to a ballet conservatoire and um, come out of it, you know, if you are unless you are one of uh, the big stars on uh, the West End, you might not get in very much. So, there are different uh, ways of looking at it, but that's why the system that we have shares the cost between the taxpayer and the student, um, because um, the stu- and the student doesn't bear hundred percent of the cospical society is in some way contributing uh, to that. Um, What is not worth the investment is definitely where you have what I've called in the past sort of threadbare courses where at one institution, you get a much better quality course in terms of um, the course design, in terms of the contact time, in terms of the quality, um, the overall quality of the experience versus another I think that is, that is not, not right, right? So if you take, um, and what you'd want is you'd want these courses to be as good as each other rather than one being a bargain basement version here, but actually you've got a good version. I think that kind of degree is perhaps not worth the investment or a degree in that kind of situation is not worth the investment. What would be your
2: preferred me- measure of those, those indicators of what's a, good, what's a good degree or a threadbare degree?
1: Um, certainly, I mean, it's, When I've spoken to students, I think when you've got situations where you hardly have any lectures, the lecturer cancels at short notice, you have sort of minimum in terms of the input, (laughs) what's expected of you, very little in terms of essay output. You turn up to a lecturer and you don't have anywhere to sit, um, even to write your notes. And um, I, I think that is that is, not, that is not a great experience now in terms of how do you um, put that into metrics. I mean, I, I would like to see the OFS as it settles and looks at value for money for courses to begin to look at this whole issue of what students are getting for what they pay for in a lot more detail. I think that's something that I'd like the OFS to focus on. Take a couple
2: more over here. Um.
1: Damien Hines has spoken about uh, how he'd like to see um, differential fees. If there were to be differential fees, should a STEM course cost more to reflect the fact that um, they might earn more and the costs are higher, or should it cost less to try and encourage people to go into STEM courses and um, to promote social mobility?
2: And we'll uh, we'll take one more. Uh, David Morris, University of Greenwich. Uh, Back to Brexit. you outlined kind of where you stand in terms of doing a doing a deal but the prospect of there being no deal looms somewhat uncomfortably Um, we know other departments are preparing for that eventuality what is going on in dfe and BEs with regards to higher education particularly
0: research and what kind of contingencies should universities be putting in place for that outcome
1: Okay, I think that's all we've got time for. So, if you can answer. That. Okay, um, so um, fees. Now, <laughs> let's see what the review comes up with. And I think I kind of think the I make a general point. Right? I think the whole psychology around fees and fee pricing is sometimes baffling for me. So, there are people who say fees are high, students wouldn't go. But actually, um, fees being high hasn't deterred applications at all. And then. Kind of when once you get into differential pricing, and this is just a general point by the way, I'm not I'm commenting on the orga review. I don't know how people respond to one subject being cheaper than the other. Do they actually want to go for the more expensive one because actually people treat. Um, education as a and good inherently, or do they go with the cheap one? I don't know what the answer is. I'm sure there's someone um, in the higher education sector who'd be able to sort of write a dissertation on this. And um, to what extent do people look at their higher education experience as a consumption rather than an investment good, for example? They're, I mean, there are lots of different permutations. So uh, in terms of where, where I just want, I'll just say, let's see where the review comes out. We, all, we already have, by the way, haven't said that, a differential system, the difference is that the government tops up the STEM subjects. So whilst we have a flat fee cap for students, there is a top-up of about 2,500 pounds that goes towards STEM subjects. So there is already differential, uh, differential resource per student in the system. It's just that um, as, far, as far as the students are concerned, what they pay irrespective of the subject they do is the same. Mm.
2: And on Brexit, should universities be making contingencies for No Deal?
1: Well, we do we do have No Deal plans. You're absolutely right, Sue. Um, and um, I, I think we've been very, very clear on what the No Deal plans are for research. Um, there is an underwrite guarantee in place till 2020. Initially, it was just till after Brexit, where all research funding from the Horizon 2020 programme will be paid out by the government, including new calls that are, uh, new applications that are made during the period after Brexit. What we're doing is working with UK Research and Innovation to make sure that all researchers are aware of this. There is a portal there for research where we are asking researchers to enter the details of uh, whatever grants they've got from Horizon 2020. So the no deal planning is very advanced on the research side. We're also engaging in no deal planning on the Erasmus side. But no one is planning for no deal.
2: I'm afraid that's all we have time for. But Sam, thank you for being a good sport and dealing with my leading questions. Uh, You're always welcome back to WompFest. Uh, Please join me in thanking Sam. Thank
1: Thank you.